Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Dr. Nathaniel Zinzer has been a sports psychology teacher and trainer for three decades. He's served on the faculties of William Patterson College in New Jersey, East Stroudsburg University in Pennsylvania, the University of Virginia System, and since 1992, he's directed the nation's leading mental skills training program at West Point's Center for Enhanced Performance. This program has been adopted by the U.S. Army for training new recruits, drill sergeants, and tactical units preparing for deployment at 25 posts across the country. He has extensive experience advising professional Olympic and Division I collegiate athletes, surgeons, corporate team leaders, first responders, and military units. His sports psychology training is complemented by his experience as a state wrestling champion, elite-level mountaineer, and lifetime practitioner of Japanese karate and meditative disciplines. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Dr. Zinzer, welcome to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Thank you. Delight to be here. I'm honored. And I'm excited to have you on the show. I believe this is a very timely conversation given how disruptive and challenging 2020 has been for people. Fortunately, much of our lives is determined in our minds, and this is based on your work with high performers. So I know you have decades of experience in your field, but I would like to go back to the early stages of your career. Did you know when you were an undergraduate college student that you wanted to be a performance psychologist, and what drew you to performance psychology? Well, in answer to the first question, uh, no, I didn't know that I wanted to be a performance psychologist way back in my undergraduate days, because back in those days, the term didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. Um, The term sports psychology, looking at the mental side of human performance, um, really hadn't attracted much attention at all from the scientific community. So there really wasn't any field. Uh, under that name at the time. What drew me to it was the fact that, you know, I had seen and witnessed and, and, and been myself, you know, a subject in, you know, the, the human drama of athletic competition, mm-hmm. high school wrestling, lacrosse, um, martial arts training throughout my college and right through to the present day, and then my years on big scary mountains. All of those experiences communicated to me that there was a very important and rather unappreciated, undervalued role to mental factors. Back in, even in middle school, I I noticed that certain teams at certain schools seemed to be very, very successful year after year after year, whereas other teams in the same school, largely composed of the same athletes, weren't so successful. There had to be something in that team environment that brought out something powerful and and, and helpful. Um, In my mountaineering years, it was very clear to watch 
perfectly competent, able climbers just become paralyzed with fear in the middle of a in the middle of a climb. Um, and boy, does it suck to be on a rope with those people when that happens. <laughs> so I've, I've just been curious about the role of the mind in human performance, very much from a participant point of view, um, and now from an advisor point of view. I, I'm intrigued by your athletic background, which includes karate, wrestling, and mountaineering, as you mentioned. Do you think being such a serious athlete yourself in individual sports that are mentally demanding has made you a better performance psychologist? Oh, w- without question. Without question. I think there's something very important to understand about how important sport can be to one's identity. You know, if, if you're a very serious high school athlete and you're looking to play in college and maybe go on to a Olympic or professional career, that sport is is basically what defines you as an individual. Now, now there's some downsides to that, certainly, but the fact remains that it's the most important thing in an individual's life. And I think having had that sense of importance for my particular athletic uh, involvement, I think that sets me up to understand what a lot of the men and women who I advise these days are going through. It matters. Perform, you know, winning, competing well, improving really, really matters to these people. And unless you have had the experience of being in that same crucible, that same cauldron yourself, I, I think it limits your effectiveness as an advisor. That makes sense. And, you know, when we move forward on the timeline to your work today, you have an enormous amount of experience researching, teaching, and practicing the science and art of human performance, because I really do think it's those two things, science and an art. Can you tell our listeners what differentiates a psychiatrist from a psychologist from a performance psychologist, just so we're clear going forward? Okay, um, very reasonable question. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor who specializes in the diseases of the mind. And he or she will work primarily with, you know, pharmaceutical interventions to, you know, and some behavioral interventions. But the idea is to change the chemistry and the physiology of the nervous system from a pathological state to a normal state. But that, that's what a psychiatrist does, a, a medical doctor who is specializing in diseases of the mind, just the same way a orthopedist is a medical doctor who specializes in musculoskeletal function. Now, a psychologist, for the most part, is trained in helping people move from a pathological or mental illness state to a higher functioning state, but they don't use um, pharmacology, they're they're not allowed or licensed to uh, prescribe medications, but they work with behavioral and cognitive and lifestyle interventions to help people move from a state of sadness, anxiety, depression, etc., to a more functional, more healthy state of mind and state of life. I think the word performance psychologist, which is very, very recent in the popular vocabulary, Mm -hmm. really looks at taking those relatively healthy, relatively happy, relatively high functioning people 
that the psychiatrist and the psychologist have helped to move from states of illness into states of, you know, relatively high functioning. Our role as performance psychologists is to help those people continue that development and really become extraordinary in the same way that a strength and conditioning coach will help someone achieve the physical levels that are bordering on the superhuman as mm. opposed to a physical therapist that tries to help somebody get put back together after an illness or an injury or an accident. A performance psychologist is really looking, how can we use the mind to help an individual really achieve some extraordinary things? So whereas the psychiatrist and psychologist take people from dysfunctional to sort of the middle, a performance psychologist such as myself is trained to help people go from the middle to the farther ends of their potential. Excellent. Thank you for that clarification. And Dr. Zinzer, you've worked with a considerable number of elite pro athletes, college athletes, and emergency military leaders. I'm wondering, what are some of the traits among individuals that are universal to optimal performers? The first thing that comes to my mind is curiosity. All these individuals are very curious. How can I get better? What else can I add to my bag of tricks? How do I maintain the level that really gives me a great deal of satisfaction? Uh, when you're a professional athlete, that question applies to, you know, how can I make myself the most successful, all pro, all star, hall of fame? And the money at that level isn't too bad either, I might <laughs> add. Uh, so so I, think, I think curiosity is a really important quality that I've seen in a lot of these people. And right alongside with that, there is this willingness to try some things that they've never tried before. Willingness to do things that they've never done, to explore concepts that they've never explored before, and then work with them, stay with them long enough to give them a chance to work. Mm -hmm. Because performance psychology, mental skills training is not a magic panacea. There's no magic spell, magic pill that they can ingest. And suddenly they're, you know, leaps and bounds better than they've ever been before. Absolutely not. It takes work. It takes work. You have to go to the weight room several days a week, several months sometimes several years before you really develop your full capacity in terms of, you know, strength and conditioning. You have to work with the mind daily over a period of weeks and months before you really experience the breakthroughs that improved confidence and improved mental focus can bring you. And then you have to keep working on them over and over and over again in order to maintain those gains. So, we're looking at curiosity, we're looking at willingness to try new things, and then we're looking at the willingness to keep doing the same old things that once were new, but now they're familiar, and you got to keep working them and keep working them in order to give them an opportunity to uh, really pay the dividends. You don't have to answer this if you're not comfortable with it, but I'm wondering, do you have any specific examples of individuals that you've worked with that exemplify those things you just described? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I spent 11 years mentoring New York Giant quarterback Eli Manning. 
And that's a name that a lot of your listeners will, will, will relate to. Eli Manning was willing to really explore how he could become a more confident leader on the team and a more effective quarterback. And he accepted my mentorship and he worked with my mentorship, like I say, for a period of 11 years. Um, and he had a pretty decent career. Uh, <laughs> let's face it, he was willing to try new things. He was curious about how he could get better. He was always looking for the next edge, whether that came from, you know, uh, different flexibility workouts, different uh, diet. You know, he was always, he was, he was very, very curious about whatever he could do in order to improve because he knew that the art of quarterbacking was essentially infinite and he was curious to find out how good he could be. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Alternatively, what are some of the obstacles or pitfalls that commonly plague performers regardless of talent, skill mastery, or work ethic? Common pitfalls. The assumption or the belief that's developed in their formative years, you know, time between age 10 and maybe age 16, that one should be constantly or primarily devoted to thinking about weaknesses, setbacks, obstacles, because that's how one becomes successful. I think that is a, that is a huge deterrent to functional mental toughness. The idea that I should be preoccupied mostly on the mistakes I've made and work on fixing them, and I should be reliving my disappointing moments in the crucible of performance because that's what's going to get me all fired up to go out and do it better next time. And based on what we know about how the brain works, based on what we know about how people learn, that belief really doesn't hold true when it comes in, in the real world of working with real people. You don't really get better by being primarily focused on your setbacks, weaknesses, disappointments, etc. You actually get better when you develop the habit of looking for the best in yourself and internalizing that and looking for more of the best in yourself while still being fueled maybe just a little bit by that disappointment or by that knowledge that you're not quite there yet. You know? So I try to really counsel people to about an 80-20 breakdown. 80% of your thoughts about yourself and your profession should be organized around how good you're getting, the progress you're making, the milestones you've, you've established for yourself, and maybe only 20% about the things that you haven't gotten right yet, the things that keep a little fire lit under your butt. Um, mm -hmm. But it's got to be a small fire, a small controlled burn rather than a raging wildfire that consumes most of us and keeps us focused on all our problems and all our difficulties. And that's not really uh, an effective way to make progress in the world. Before we continue to unpack some of the ways to reach optimal performance, I just want to make a note that I do not take for granted the fact that we get to sit here and have this conversation today because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you've been a professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point since 1992. Can you describe the evolution in thinking about performance over that period? I believe professional sports were the catalyst for looking at this. Well, if, if your question is about how the field has matured or developed, the answer is that 
you know, over the last two decades, there has been such a greater acceptance of the idea of working with the mind and the fact that the mind can be trained and improved the same way that your heart and lungs or your muscular system can be trained and improved. When I first came to West Point in 1992, uh, we did not use the word psychology in our office title. We were the Performance Enhancement Center, because back in those days, the word psychology basically still scared the crap out of people. <laughs> it, made, it made people think of, you know, lying on a couch and telling your dreams to some guy with a white beard and glasses who was taking notes about the, you know, latent and manifest content of your dreams and sort of psychoanalyzing you. We, we never did any of that, by the way. Um, mm -hmm. And we wanted to avoid any kind of stigma about looking at the mind. So we used the term performance enhancement, which is what we were all about. The world has changed over the last 20-something years, and the term psychology isn't nearly as scary or pejorative as it was back then. There's still a bit of a stigma, I might add. There's still a bit of a stigma about admitting to somebody that maybe you don't think as effectively as you could, and maybe the limits to your performance aren't necessarily the number of laps you're willing to run, the number of hours you're willing to study film, the number of drills you're willing to do, maybe the limits to your performance have to do with the way you use your memory and the way you're talking to yourself and the things that you're picturing, you know, in those deep recesses of your mind. The world has a greater appreciation of those things in general, uh, but there's still a little stigma about it that yet lingers. I know that some of your work is oriented on helping people to achieve a flow state or function in the optimal zone under pressure. What exactly is a flow state and why does it seem so elusive to so many of us? A flow state is pretty much when you get out of your own way and you allow all your competence to emerge without second guessing without over-analysis, without worry. Almost every performer in any sport or any art and, you know, the first responders have all felt it. They've all felt a moment where their performance just jumps to another gear and there's a sense of energy at the same time, an eerie sense of calm and ease that is delicious to experience, very difficult to describe and impossible to duplicate in the traditional sense of the word. One of the reasons why it's difficult to describe accurately is because the part of your brain that processes certain kinds of memories and deals with logic and verbal speech, a lot of those brain centers just go to sleep when you are in that performance zone. The only parts of your brain that are busy are the parts of your brain that are necessary for the performance of the task. See the target, react to the target. You don't need a whole lot of verbal accompanying discursive thought in order to execute that task. And the more of that you have, the more it tends to just get in the way. Mm -hmm. So in that flow state or zone state, however you want to call it, your brain is actually very, very efficient and very, very effective. But there's a whole lot of it that is going to sleep and not... Uh, 
and not taking up your energy or distracting you. I'm not sure I answered the second part of your question. You want to put that to me again? Why is it so elusive to many of us to reach that flow state? Yeah, why is it so elusive? I won't be facetious in saying this, but the answer is because we try to make it happen. We try to get in the zone. And that sense of consciously, deliberately trying to get in the zone basically makes it impossible because we are injecting a level of deliberate conscious thought when we're trying to essentially be unconscious about what we are doing. And that's why every time that I present to the fire department personnel in our mental performance initiative sessions, you know, we look at, yeah, what do you like in the zone? And then we look at just as carefully as what are the states of mind? What are the mental habits? What do you experience when you're not in the zone? And we work on minimizing those obstacles, those things that you do with your mind when you're not in the zone, because the zone just exists in you and it's just waiting to be let out. It's not something that you have to acquire. It's, it's, it's in all of us, but we've, we've acquired habits through our socialization, through our schooling that makes us tend to worry, doubt, fear, hence. And if we can just eliminate those practices that produce the worry, produce the doubt, produce the fear, then we get to a nice neutral zone in the middle. I call it trust. It's a pretty simple word. And in that state of trust, with just a little bit of luck, you get blown over the threshold into the zone. So the reason why it's elusive is because we go about it the wrong way. It's like like chasing, chasing the butterfly from bush to bush rather than just sitting still and letting the butterfly settle on your shoulder. Absolutely. And yes, I've heard you speak about this at the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. You made a comment, people perform at their best when they're not thinking consciously. But I think it's fair to say that we've all heard leaders assert that they want people to make smart decisions under pressure. Yet this strikes Mm -hmm. me as a contradiction of sorts, because how can we make smart decisions while performing if we're not actually thinking? Well, because so much of those important decisions that we make are made on an unconscious level. And you can train yourself. This is why we practice. This is why firefighters do drills. This is why basketball players take thousands of shots. So that their ability to sense the distance from the basket and the amount of force that they have to put on the ball or any other complicated human movement, whether it's playing a scale on a piano or scaling a ladder into a burning building, those skills, those physical skills are just encoded into your nervous system and you don't need to think about them to let them out. All you got to do is look at the target and it's there. Mm-hmm. So when we say people do their best work when they're not, quote unquote, thinking, that word thinking is indeed in quotes. People do their best work when they are, when they have acquired a level of skill and then quiet their rational intellectual thought just to allow what they've got inside them to come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this works whether you're taking a calculus exam or you're trying to kick the game-winning field goal in the Army and Navy football game. Mm -hmm. I hope that answered your question. It's a tough one. The root of it is is that thinking can be thought of 
in many different levels. And most of the people that I talk to will admit, yeah, I overthink. You know, I step up to hit the golf ball and I'm thinking, okay, now make sure you bring your hips through and hit the, you know, right in the center and don't uh, pronate and don't supinate. And now they're overthinking as opposed to just taking the stance, relaxing, maybe picturing where they want the ball to go and letting their body do what they have practiced thousands of times. I think you answered my question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we're touching on self-fulfilling prophecies. And when people create their own realities, and I'll let you expand on that, is this done consciously or subconsciously? Well, I think a lot of self-fulfilling prophecies operate on both levels. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I encourage people to cultivate a functional self-fulfilling prophecy. I encourage people to think of themselves as ridiculously competent at, a, at, at the key tasks in their job, whatever it may be, by telling themselves that, by thinking of themselves at that level, picturing themselves, talking to themselves as if they already have that skill, even when they don't. What they're doing is encouraging their nervous system to adjust, alter, develop, and enable them to eventually produce those skills. Some of that is done on a conscious level. Yes, I write an affirmational statement 20 times a night, or I repeat an affirmational phrase every time I walk through a doorway. I do that on a conscious level so that the idea that I am affirming, I am calm and decisive under pressure, for example, or my shots flow as soon as I break from my defender so that that will now become an unconscious behavior. You have to start it consciously, but eventually it drops into the unconscious. And then when the moment occurs, the behavior occurs. Excellent. So if the person you must lead first is yourself, what are some factors that we should really clearly be aware of that prohibit us from being our best? Mm. Preoccupation with your shortcomings and failures, I think is a big one. I would say um, the tendency or the idea that I have to block out a lot of distractions in order to concentrate on what's important, that usually hinders the process and tends to give more mental energy to all the things that you're trying to block out instead of simply deciding, okay, what's important here? What's the target I want to put my senses on? And can I allow myself just to stay on that? A related factor is the idea that we have to be constantly putting out energy, putting out energy, putting out energy, working, working, working to achieve success, to develop competence, I think there's a lot to be said about deliberately stepping back and deliberately recovering energy so that your biological battery stays charged up. I really appreciate that. Thank you. One of the teaching endeavors you're so passionate about at the USMA is teaching young cadets about the importance of character. What character traits do you believe are most important to a young officer in the military? I would again say personal honesty. That is really huge. Are you being truthful 
can people trust you? Because if you can't create a sense of trust within your organization, and for a West Point grad, it's a platoon of soldiers, if you can't create that trust, if they don't see you as somebody who says what they mean, means what they say, and then acts on what they say, they're not going to want to follow you. And that's just pretty basic human stuff. Mm -hmm. um, character has a heck of a lot to do with, with honesty. I think character also has a heck of a lot to do with stretching your personal limits, you know, Mm -hmm. Not being necessarily satisfied, but always, like I said, that curiosity, of, you know, how can I get better? You know, if I'm a if I'm a new lieutenant and I'm in an armor brigade and I've got to learn about the maintenance uh, schedules uh, and ordering procedures to maintain my Bradley fighting vehicles. Well, then that going I'm going to become an expert in that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to know the part number of every nut and bolt that goes on that machine. So there's that aspect as well. And I think a huge element of character, and boy, is this important, is the idea of caring more about the people under your command than you care about yourself. Mm -hmm. Does their success matter most? Does their success matter more than what their success might say to your uh, superiors about how well you're leading? You want to give them the tools so that they can succeed in their success is what matters the most. Do you care about, do you care about other people? I would say those are three little prongs of the character mission that I'm, that I'm involved with all the time. Right. I mean, you, you called it basic human stuff. I think all of those things are very transferable, even outside of the military and good to hear and reinforce. As a thought leader who spends an inordinate amount of time Thinking about and advancing human performance under stress, how would you describe 2020 thus far? And listeners, for the record, we are recording this in the month of November. Yes, we are recording this in the month of November when COVID cases are increasing dramatically across the country. So, yeah, well, what would I say about 2020? I would describe 2020 as a year where, where we are really being tested, okay? We are really being tested to see if we can continue to try to be better performers, better human beings, better people under rather extraordinary situations, rather extraordinary conditions. I have on my whiteboard in my office, I'm looking at it right now, an entire whiteboard filled up with basically the existential crisis of our time right now. Uh, and I put this on my whiteboard, I think, the first week of August, at just as our academic year here at West Point was getting underway. You know, And the existential crisis, the big question of our time, is whether we're just sort of treading water at the moment or whether we are chasing greatness in our own way. Mm -hmm. The question for everybody is, you know, am I just trying to get by until there's some miraculous disappearance of COVID-19, you know, the arrival of a vaccine? Am I just treading water? Am I just trying to get by during all of this and waiting till the world returns to some kind of normal? Or am I really looking to make progress where I can? Am I looking to make progress 
in myself physically, technically, tactically, mentally, intellectually, personally, spiritually. I, I think 2020 is the year that has forced us to really look deep within ourselves and say, what are we doing about the things that we can control? Are we really trying to be what we can be? Or are we just trying to hang on by our fingernails? And boy, is it a challenge. It's hard. COVID fatigue is hitting everywhere. Mm-hmm. But we got to keep asking ourselves that single, very important existential question and be honest about our answers. To build on that, is there anything that you've discovered about human behavior this year? Or is there anything you've changed your mind about regarding human behavior in 2020? I wouldn't say I've changed my mind about too much, but I sure have seen people who have taken it upon themselves to develop in every way they can, despite Mm -hmm. the limitations. Mm -hmm. We've had athletic teams here at West Point that have had to be, that have had to suspend, you know, any kind of competitive schedule because of COVID. We have 4,400 cadets who cannot leave our little post here on the banks of the Hudson. Uh, They're not allowed to walk into town. They're not allowed to leave on the weekends. That does create a certain degree of frustration among plenty of them. But others of them have said, okay, well, this is the deal. It's kind of like gravity. I can't do anything about it. It's gravity. (laughs) So so am am I going to respond to these limitations on my freedoms the same way I respond to the physical force of gravity that keeps me on on the planet. I, I don't worry about gravity. I just go about my day. Are you going to go about today? Are you going to do what you can, given the fact that you have all these limits on your freedoms, all these limits on your ability to, you know, leave post, do the kinds of normal things that we wish we could do at times? Or are you going to take advantage of the situation as it is, the resources as they are, and developed as a human being. I've seen some people have done a really good job with that. Seems like a very resilient response. As we begin to wind down, Dr. Zinzer, I imagine that many of our listeners will be inspired to dig deeper into the topics we discussed. So I'd like to ask you a few more questions that will hopefully lead them to further insight about optimal human performance. So my first question is, what is your favorite book? My favorite book. My favorite book on performance psychology is maybe the first real one I ever read on the topic. It's The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galloway, G-A-L-L-W-E-Y, first published in 1976, I believe. I've got a first edition hardcover, and it's really about the inner game, the game that goes on in in your mind between the parts of your mind that are important for acquiring skill and competence and then delivering that skill and competence. That is a really, really great book if people wanted to start exploring that. There's a 25th anniversary edition, which uh, has a introduction by Pete Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, who I've known over the years uh, and who has really utilized a lot of this kind of mental skills insight in coaching you know, college and professional football. That's awesome. Is there a documentary or a film you highly recommend? I'm often asked what my favorite sports movie is. And it goes back to 19, 
Oh, early 1990s, I think. The movie is Cool Runnings. It's uh, basically, <laughs> basically a comedy about the Jamaican bobsled team who arrived in Calgary, Alberta for the 1988 Winter Olympics, and nobody thought they should be there. Now, the, the, the movie takes a lot of liberties with the true story. I mean, it is a true story. The Jamaicans did send a bobsled team for the first time to the Winter Olympics in 1988, but the four athletes, in that movie that are portrayed and the coach that they have, those five individuals all face their individual mental challenges about being confident and focused in the moment of truth. There's some good stuff in there. There's some good stuff about facing down what really bothers you and rising as best as you can, bringing out your best self in the moment, especially when you're under a heck of a lot of pressure um, and being discriminated against. I think that film has some value. I recommend it. Actually, it's funny. I was not expecting that answer. And as soon as you said cool runnings, I thought of that like <laughs> mantra that they say at the beginning of each whatever it is that they take off and they say, here's, feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Come on, kids. It's bobsled time. Cool runnings. Just as a way of dealing with all the seriousness of the Olympics. And here we are. We're kids. We're having fun. We're going for it. Peace be the journey. Cool running. Yeah. Um, great scene. Absolutely. And the word rhythm just reminded me. I heard that you're musically inclined. Is that true? I don't know if musically inclined is a fair statement. I do play drums. So I'm, I guess I'm rhythmically inclined. Um, okay. But I don't know if you can call, always call it music, but it's rhythmic a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. Who is your favorite leader from any time in history? I've been reading a lot about Winston Churchill these days. Okay. And boy, he, he had his, his crusty side. He had his deficiencies as a human being. But you talk about a guy who stood tall when the chips were down, you know, keep keeping the population of England, you know, optimistic enough optimistic enough, not wonderfully optimistic, but optimistic enough uh, during the dark days in the Battle of Britain. You know, mm -hmm. you know the, the statements he made, you know, publicly about this is not a time for ease or comfort. This is a time to endure and dare. I absolutely love that. This is a time to endure and to dare, to dare to think that we're going to get out of this, to dare to think that we're going to win to dare to think that we've got everything it takes to, to succeed. I, I really like that. That's very powerful. I'm almost tempted to end on that note, but I do have two more short questions for you. Please. Do you have a favorite athlete? Do I have a favorite athlete? Well, I have really been influenced by a gentleman that wouldn't be known to your readership at all. Uh, his name is Hitomo Oshima. He was the first, first karate expert to teach in the United States going back to the middle 1950s. And I was privileged enough to join his organization as an undergraduate, trained under him and received my black belt degrees from him. And he's just an extraordinary individual just in terms of modeling, being personally honest, facing yourself, not being satisfied 
not assuming that you have certain limits. He's right up there in the top of my list. In terms of a, you know, professional athlete or an athlete that, you know, most of the other, you know, a lot of people might know. There's an Austrian mountaineer by the name of Reinhold Messner, N-E-S-S-N-E-R, who was described as the, you know, the Michael Jordan of climbing. Uh, first guy to climb Everest without oxygen, uh, did all these incredible climbs, both in the Himalayas and Europe, just an extraordinary physical performer. Um, he's kind of up there on my list, too. Great. And lastly, your favorite team of all time. Well, my favorite team of all time, well, that's the New York Giants, of course. Uh, that's, that's easy. Uh, some, of, some of my earliest childhood memories are watching the New York Giants on old black and white television mm-hmm. back in the days of Y.A. Tittle and Alex Webster and Jim Cat Cabbage and Sam Huff and, you know, that those, those old days when they would play in Yankee Stadium on grass and muddy fields and Oh, yeah, I've been a Giants fan forever, and uh, I know they're struggling at the moment with a 2-7 and seven record, um, but I have great faith in the organization to uh, come out on top again eventually. Fair enough. Dr. Zinzer, thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing so much on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. Uh, this has been a delight and a privilege, and I thank you for the opportunity I hope all the listeners can take something away from it and better their lives. Absolutely. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.